Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In Series 3, we sit down with a wide range of guests to discuss their journeys working with emerging technology, what innovation means to them, and their advice on navigating the ever-changing landscape as technology continues to disrupt the world. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats to Simon Godfrey, who is the Chair for the Public Sector Board of Tech UK, about how government and private sectors can work together to maximise services, how AI can help us progress more cost-effectively, and how inflammatory pressures are affecting digital transformation. Simon is an expert in the business of public sector and is a former strategic advisor to the Prime Minister's office. He has held senior director roles at SAP, Oracle, GSK and BT. Welcome, Simon, to the show again. Thanks very much for joining us. Pleased you could make it. And we've got some great content to walk through today. It's a very exciting topic, very topical at the moment with a lot of things that are going on in the world. So I suppose I'll give you a little bit of a background and for the audience as well as to what we're trying to trying to cover today. So we've got a bit of a play on, obviously, emerging tech technologies with a view on the technologies that are appealing to the public sector the management of legacy technologies as well, because we all know that the public sector likes to sweat its assets now and again. And I suppose the appetite for innovation within the public sector as well. And I think probably in comparison to my normal stomping ground, which is the enterprise side of things. So I'm not the expert here today. Simon, I know I'm in capable hands. So um, I suppose to start off, just to warm us both up, would you mind sort of sharing a little bit of your background, please? Yeah, yeah, happy to, Ian. Of course, I sort of stumbled into technology about 30 plus years ago, really. I always, <laughs> I'd planned to go into biology after watching Jacques Cousteau and many sort of programs to do with cosmology. And I, anyway, that sort of sparked my imagination, but it became obvious to me there wasn't really a decent living to be made in the field of biology or zoology for that matter. And, and so I took a role that sort of just got me into selling tech, really. And actually, it was the boom time, you know, it was before pre-internet, clearly well, pre-World Wide Web, at least. And I really enjoyed it. And I found a love of communicating and speaking with people. And I think back in the days when technology was very exciting, as it still is, but it was really nascent and embryonic and back in there in those days, it proved a really fertile sort of place to learn and to grow and to experience. And I ended up working in the public sector sort of by accident, really. I had spent some time with what was ICL prior to some of the information that you had before they became Fujitsu. I sort of rose through the ranks there and ended up in their consulting division and had an opportunity to work for the PMO. And and I thought, well, I don't want to work for the project management office. That's not my skill set. So anyway, I said, no, no, Simon, this is the uh, prime minister's office. Would you go along a bit of a chat and an interview? And I had done quite a bit of work with local authorities. So very familiar with the challenges and the context and a little bit around what was then MAF that is now DEFRA. And I absolutely, you know, was went into that conversation with the PMO a little bit bullish, I think, is the best way to put it. And when they asked me, can I do a certain task in a certain amount of time? And I said, absolutely not. It's just not feasible given the complexity of the office that you are. And I think they liked my honesty and they invited me back for a three-year stint to actually go and do the work as you outlined earlier, which was a myriad of different things, to be honest. So I'm sort of, if I'm honest, I'm addicted to public sector work. Not because of financial rewards, but because of outcomes for citizens and taxpayers and stakeholders. And I think we've come a long way in the 25 to 30 years I've been doing this work, but we've still got a long way to go. And this is one of the reasons I'm happy to talk with you today. The more voices, the better. The more volume, the better. Uh, And, you know, I won't stop 
sort of harpy on about how we could do things better until such time as I shuffle up my mortal coil. <laughs> Brilliant way of putting it. And, and I think when we talk public sector, I don't think, you know, we appreciate how huge that is. It's, you know, if we're classing, I suppose, the NHS into that, you know, I think the NHS is still one of the largest employers in Europe. It is, it is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That just gives you a perspective on the sheer size. And then you get some of those big departments that come in like DWP and HMRC. We've done a lot of work for public sector through our customers over the years. Yes. And I, I like some of the more I suppose specialised departments of, of like DEFRA because you've got you've got the fisheries in there, you've got agriculture, oh, yeah. and yeah, I find that area really fascinating. They get some really exciting tech projects as well that I can imagine. You know, the sort of guy on the ground and you know from the forestry commission looking at them going, "What we're going to use laptops out in the field and stuff," and then you know, yeah, I can just see the sort of the change it brings, but perhaps not the most receptive of areas initially. Well, I think the challenge in those, those, I mean, I agree with you totally that the smaller agencies and departments of state have, they can be more nimble, but they do suffer the slings and arrows of the treasury. And what I mean by that is, you know, they'll, they'll go in for their sort of annual spending review or biannual or triennial. They'll put a business case forward and they end up always getting top slice. So they always have some tough choices to make. But nevertheless, across the entire gamut of public sector, we are facing a 15% top slicing. But I absolutely concur with your point. DEFRA particularly with the aquaculture and agriculture and the fisheries. I mean, I love, I did a small consulting project for CFAS, which is part of DEFRA many years ago. I went up to Hull to the offices and I had a blast. What a wonderful bunch of people focused on outcomes. Actually, if anybody's going to innovate at the edge with technologies, then it's those types of organisations that are really facing the issues and the challenges of the day, probably less so the big beasts of state, even though if you ask them, they would say they are, and I'm sure they are in their own way, but you and I would probably take great pleasure in understanding how we can look at a catch of fish with artificial intelligence and know what quotas we've taken in an instant rather than having to take them back to port and weigh them and grade them as such. One, One small application. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the projects that, that sort of I, I remember getting involved with after the outbreak of foot and mouth some years ago was the RFID tags in the cow's ears, which would basically form a cow passport. And everyone laughs when I talk about cow passports. But, you know, the way that now if there's an outbreak, they can reduce tracking down where it's come from in a matter of hours and days rather than weeks and months. And the impact, you know, on the economy, but I suppose the rural economy in particular is huge. It can be devastating to livelihoods. And the fact that technology can make that difference to me, that's the sort of things that I'm really passionate about myself. I, um, back in my earlier days, I said when Foot and Mouth happened, I chose to go and uh, have a busman's holiday on a hill farm to understand what it was like for somebody in Cumbria to deal with government. So I was working on behalf of MAF at the time, developing their whole farm plan, which was a way to look use technology to deliver better outcomes for farmers. And so I jumped in with both feet into that opportunity, booked a holiday for two weeks and you know went and spent it with somebody at the front line. And in just in doing that, you learn a lot, right, about how one, the relationship between the centre and the field is, you know, it's not what you think it is sometimes, but also the opportunity. Farmers are incredibly smart people who are embracing technologies, no matter if it's arable, dairy or otherwise, they are doing a fantastic job, not all of which is government funded, clearly. 
Mm, absolutely. And I suppose in terms of currently that there's a lot of, I suppose, turbulent times in, you know, uh, in, in the economy and, and, you know, challenging times in government as well. Does that have a, you know, an impact on our, our technology partners and innovation, do you think? Or is, is it short term? Or I think so. But I'll, ex- I'll explain what I mean by I think so, because inevitably, when the money's tight, decisions are scrutinised even more so than they ever would have been before. The way funding typically works in public sector, as I sort of mentioned at the outset, is that you'll bid for a slug of money, having already planned how you're going to spend the money as a department. And you're probably given some of that, all of that, or just a little bit less than you, you, that you need, and you've got to mm-hmm. cut your cloth accordingly. For many years now, there has been, as you'll know, in the SME agenda to... Um, ask, encourage that at least 30 plus percent, I think that was the official target, 33 percent of all business transacted with government is done by SMEs. But therein lies a bit of a challenge because working with government is inherently risky because the political goalposts change. They'll often talk about agile, but actually when you have a funding mechanism that is a slug of money up front, it's generally a waterfall project. You'll probably recognize this. So actually the mechanisms by dealing with some of the larger departments directly from a small business is always going to be a challenge, really because they haven't got the resources that they need to look very broadly across the spectrum to say, okay, am I aware of this and this? So I would say the quality of relationship really matters for the small, you know, I think it's got to be exponentially better than some of the larger organisations because you really need to sort of intuit and understand where your contract might be headed, why, why it might stop, why it might change. So I think that's one part, but I still think it's a wonderful opportunity. But I've long been a, a fan of collaboration, proper collaboration, not where a, you know, you, for example, will come in as a subcontractor mm. and some margin will be put on margin because that's counterproductive. I'd rather see a situation where there's an ecosystem developing, where the value of each of those ecosystem partners really can deliver the measured value to the customer. And that's a mindset change for the buyer as well, for government agencies and departments to think, you know, it's not just the prime that matters, it's the entire family members that matter and engaging them in a conversation that is bringing them all on the journey rather than having a bi-weekly conversation with the prime only. So I think there's a cultural shift that needs to happen. But I do think if the value proposition is strong, then absolutely there is space for smaller businesses to enable the larger parts of government to deliver better services. Okay. Okay. And I suppose when we're talking about government, particularly in the technology space, you know, there's a lot of legacy technologies out there. You know, is that sort of that legacy tech and the desire to sweat the assets for obvious reasons, is that often a challenge to user experience and I suppose security as such, because it's very topical at the moment? And how does the government aim to tackle those challenges and sometimes wanting to sweat the assets? Is that then become a barrier to innovation itself? Look, I think the word legacy is a very small word for a very many set of complex challenges, not all of which is about asset sweating. If I think about, I mean, it is a major problem. I mean, you know, problem and opportunity, in in all honesty. I think Treasury was asked for about £6 billion sum of money to help government writ large, and this is not local authority, this is just largely the main operators of the state and the agencies, to tackle its legacy problem. What it got was 
billion pounds. So it's you know, let's just do simple maths. It's roughly two thirds of us say no, you can't. But here's two point six. Go and have fun. And that was ring fence, which is the first time that's been ring fence to spend on legacy. So that's the simple stuff done. The reality is that there's some legacy that needs to be refreshed because it's just out of support. You know, in, in my business, you know, some of the parts are harder to get. They're costing exponentially more and we need to refresh the estate. But therein lies the risk. There's a, the old adage, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Okay. And actually, if you're living in the moment, Ian, as a government official, and the service is sort of working for today, generally speaking, as long as it works for tomorrow and the day after, you're sort of okay. If you think you're going to spend time, money, resource, emotion, and all the stuff that goes with it to replace a legacy, which you'll know intellectually is a legacy service or product, then it's a big leap of faith. That's one thing. Then there's the mechanism by which that's procured. Okay, there are a number of different ways to do this. Hmm. If we just stick with the what we used to know as the ODU process, let's say it's a big project, for example, then... I know that's changing through legislation, but that's not going to happen until the end of next year. So we are where we are with that and the process of OJU. And that then actually is quite timely, quite complex. To my earlier point about bringing SMEs into the, to the ecosystem to evolve new ideas, that's difficult. But nevertheless, it's a lot of time, effort and energy from the government department to do that. Equally, there are easier mechanisms. There's something called G-Cloud, which you'll probably be well aware of, through the Crown Commercial Service Frameworks, and there's many more frameworks with CCS and with others. So there are contracting mechanisms to engage, but the reality is that I have seen very little evidence thus far of legacy really being tackled systemically across government. And I think it's a missed opportunity. I think I was speaking to Treasury officials just a couple of weeks ago, that I think we need to rethink how these things are funded. We need to think about an investment up front because you're going to have to keep the lights on on the current system. You're not going to be able to develop something in a black box on midnight on one given day, turn it, this one off and turn that one on and hope that it works. I know you could do sandbox testing and all this, that and the other, but the reality is the risk is too big, especially when you're talking about welfare payment systems and so on. I use that as one example. So I think legacy is critical. And if I think about, one, the technologies, but also to your point about the issues around security, Clearly, the older the tech, very likely the, the less secure it is, given it's probably less well-supported over time and it's hand-cranked. So I think it's a whole myriad of issues. You, I mean, it's a great question, right? Uh, and honestly, Ian, nobody's really being able to sort of put the spotlight on and say, right, here's our route map for goodness. Mm, okay. And I suppose a part of, I think, trying to tackle some of these issues that, that we're talking about, the government created the Central Digital and Data Office in 2021, if I'm correct, to assume responsibility for the digital strategy, standard spend control. This has been cited as a bit of a reboot of the government digital services department, which I believe had ownership of it previously and had ownership of digital transformation for the last sort of 10 years. Mm-hmm. What impact have you seen, if any, of the CDDO has had on collaboration with the government and has it improved? So we'll take on a journey, right? So so when GDS was first imagined and first formed with um, Mike Bracken and Liam Maxwell back in the 2010-2011 timeframe, its purpose was, and I quote Liam on this, to put tanks on the lawns of government departments to make them do things differently. Everything was open source, open standard, you know, interoperability. So you'll remember this, right? And actually, 
government isn't one customer. So doing that across a very complex estate to the legacy point, having to reinvent the way people think, work and play, that's a big challenge in itself. So Michael Liam did a great job helped by Francis Maud with, you know, there's no more money in the tank, let's, you know, do more for less. That that was the formation of the first half a dozen years of GDS, really. So they focused on the, the Mike Bracken's background from The Guardian was about that interaction layer, right? So making it easier for me to, to have my passport, you'll know this, of course, and my driving license, which is the two they often wheel out. So, so that's where it was born, but it evolved over time, GDS, to focus on products and services, but also to develop policy. Now, what you've got with the CDDO is effectively you have a policy function in CDDO about strategy and taking the business forward, looking to the longer term under Paul Wilmot is his sort of, and Mike Potter now. And then you've got Tom Reed over at GDS. GDS are really now focused upon delivery of specific services, you know, the, the, the one sign, the one gov signing piece, for example. I'm sure I've quoted that wrongly, but, and then, you know, a whole series of other things to enable better and smarter government. So I think Tom is really focused upon the execution with, with GDS and Mike and others at CDDO looking upwards and outwards about how things can be done more smartly. To your point about operational engagement and so on and so forth, it's difficult, it is difficult because they've had, so this must be the fourth time they've come to the table with a slightly different shape. I would say, however, in my interactions with Tom and with Paul and with others, there's a real willingness to sort of think differently about the problem. I don't think we can stay where we are, just sort of tinkering at the margins. We really need to think a little bit more holistically and differently. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's great. And I suppose some of those challenges that we see, you know, again, coming back to what I said earlier, you know, when we talk about public sector, I think, you know, people sort of either, either think of the big departments, DWP, but they forget that there's lots of other different all players with yes. di- lots of different requirements all coming into the mix, which makes that, it's not like having a digital strategy for one company. It's so diverse. It, it, it's quite challenging, I should imagine. Yeah, it is. I think, you know, the way I would frame it is that each, to your point about the, the smaller family members of DEFRA, they've all got very specific things to do. So they'll use technology in a certain way. Nevertheless, there are certain, core competencies that stretch right across public sector and i don't mean the ldrp mm. stuff you know which is what it is so i think that this you i think paul certainly and mike certainly could take the view that let's fix the, what i call the, the the plumbing layers the connectivity you know the base layers the platforms uh, and as paul was alluding to me the other day you know a lot of that functionality of you know specific deliverability then is you know easily accessible easily purchased swappable as well, testable, and that can be plugged into the platforms. And that's no different, really, to Liam's view of many years ago. But actually, I think it's a slightly more mature view than, you know, a decade or more on. Okay. And I suppose, speaking of the technologies, and it's very rare when we're talking about innovation or, I suppose, emerging tech, and I suppose AI is probably no longer an emerging tech, but a lot of organisations are still getting used to it. And I suppose AI is there helping us to progress quicker and more cost-effectively. However, some of the ethical issues such as bias and data ownership are quite a challenge. Are they a bigger challenge to the public sector? And I suppose the example I use is there was a lot of attention in the press around facial recognition, and obviously the police were trialling it. It wasn't quite what it was spoke about. Again, coming back to those issues, is that a wider impact, do you think, on the public sector and their ability to move forward with those technologies? 
Yes, in brief. I think that because if you think about this commercially from an enterprise point of view, you'll deploy AI to deliver a specific set of outcomes. And the way you govern it and architect it is in a pretty clear-sighted, clear-minded fashion. When you think about government, right, you and I, the word again is one word, but it means many different things according to where you are in the hierarchy and what services you need, you know, today, tomorrow, and so on. So there is a risk if you deploy AI, and one of these, if you remember rightly, was the grading system. An algorithm was set in train for grading in the first year of the pandemic for, I think it was secondary schools. Anyway, long story short is that 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 algorithm didn't work very well, actually. It had a bias built into it over time. So you raise a really good point. So, But my point I'm trying to make is that if you do it somewhere in government and it doesn't work, it affects all of government, right? Because it is one government. So therefore, you'll have a PAC issue, you'll have a national audit and office sort of report to do. It'll be on the front page of the Mail, the Sun, the Mirror, the Times, the Telegraph, and so on and so forth, as it was at the time. So there is a nervousness about deployment of AI. Now, on the ethics side of things, you're absolutely spot on. There's a lady called Professor Carissa Veliz from Oxford University. I would recommend anybody to go and read her book. The title will come back to me shortly. If not, I'll catch up at the end. But it's brilliant. It talks about, you know, you have, you should have the ability to look after your own information and permissions to i mean this is nothing new right you know but then you should get value from your own data which i think there's been a long journey for people to understand that you know it, it is your data how do you harness that to get value and then assign and ascribe permissions for being you so we're in this gray zone government would i say you know maybe it wouldn't like to but so the nirvana situation is that all data is free for them they can manipulate it whatever they want. They can put AI over the top of it, machine learning, and come out with some answers. But to your very eloquent point about facial recognition, you know, then it's all about privacy, right? I, I have the right in a democracy, if I wish to, to remain private. I don't wish that if I'm a law-abiding citizen that I want to be tracked as I walk around London. Even though, to be honest, you know, whether it's facial recognition or not, and if I wasn't a law-abiding citizen, I would be. So, so it is a really challenging ethical area, and I don't think it will ever be completely solved. It's, ethics are never really binary. So I do think you know we've got more work to do on it, and smarter minds need to come around the table to solve the problem here. Yeah, and I think that's something we could debate all day long because I think everyone's a little bit concerned about who holds what data on us these days. And you know, most phones or iPads use some sort of facial recognition or some biometrics these days yes. to access them, and nobody quite knows where that data is going. And I can imagine that, you know, we probably don't have that concern in the enterprise, but perhaps we should. But we have that concern in the public sector space, but perhaps yeah. we shouldn't. But again, that, that's a, probably we could debate that all day long. Yeah, I just, on, just reflecting on that, I see a lot of people using their iPads for facial. My wife does the same. She'll sort of pop her up, you know, and I'll grimace when I look at it and it still doesn't recognise me, you know. But it's your choice, right? But you are right about data sovereignty, yeah. where it's held. That is a, especially with the global geopolitical situation the way it is at the moment, then I think it's a question that certain parts of government are looking long and hard at in terms of how do you architect your solution with that data sovereignty piece in mind. You know, cloud is cloud, but it's not one cloud. There's a lot, as you know, well, I'm sure in plenty of different types of opportunities to exploit this cloud or that cloud hybrid and so on. Yeah, okay. 
there's a lot of pressure in enterprise and public sector at the moment from an economic point of view. And there's a lot of uncertainty coupled with supply chain issues, which we're all well aware of, fiscal challenges that are all making digital transformation more challenging in the short term. How can technology partners, in your opinion, support the government during this period to ensure that the budgetary pressures don't see projects slow down or stop entirely, which is probably the biggest concern? That's a brilliant question. And I don't think it's one that's been fundamentally answered very well so far. I'll give you my two pennies worth, really. There's been this... I was with the National Audit Office yesterday. We were talking exactly about this issue, about competitive tension in procurements and you know keep keeping the wheels turning and so on and so forth. I genuinely think that collaboration is the key to it. But the way procurements are set up, it's about pure and utter competition. And they would call it best value. But I would argue that best value isn't really just about prices. It sort of seems, still seems to be some years on. Best value constitutes a whole variety of things. You know, if I was a government official and I'm using your organisation, I'd like to know that you were well run, you, you were ethical, you paid your staff well. All those soft factors, as well as getting a great price from you. Now, if that great price is marginally more than one of your competitors, the value, I've got to look at it in the round, okay? So, so I think with these pressures financially, which are inevitable, and probably inevitable for the next four to five years, then industry, writ large, stepping in, asking to collaborate more smartly with the government is the first thing to do, right? So with my Tech UK hat, and I'm absolutely driven to understand why government wants to and why they should and put a very strong argument together about where they can collaborate more smartly. That's my wish, right? But the government, like I'd like to follow a process, it's public money, right? So they want to ascribe a process to that value and prove it at the end of the day, they've got the best value they possibly can. Those two things are not in synchronicity at the minute. Okay, they're not syncing. And actually we've got more work to do this. But to sum up, look, technology is the answer now, what is the question? That's the, the basic simple truth of it, really. If we are going to remain a competitive, dynamic, thriving economy, notwithstanding Brexit and all the other challenges we face, we have to use technology more smartly, both in the public sector, but equally as well in the private sector. And there needs to be a better dialogue, a richer dialogue between public and private sector. And I suppose that brings me really nicely. And I know we, we touched earlier on in the SMEs out there and uh, you know, from the nature of the technologies in terms of emerging tech and innovative products, by the nature of the people that provide those, they're predominantly delivered by SMEs, of which the government has obviously set targets. There's been conversations for as long as I can remember about setting targets to get spend through SMEs. I suppose the challenge being that most SMEs struggle to work with the public sector because of the frameworks are seen as a bit of a barrier. And then you mentioned before margin on margin and briefly with working with some of the bigger providers. How can, again, in your opinion, can technology partners and the government work better to bridge this gap and get the innovation from the technologies and SMEs that are out there? I think most corporate organisations do horizon scanning and they look very broadly across the landscape of technologies that they think they might or might not, but they're prepared to investigate them, could make them slightly more competitively on point, right? So, so government doesn't have that tension. It's not about competition for government, but actually 
there is still a burning platform for horizon scanning. Now, certain departments of state will, will do horizon scanning in their very niche areas. So, for example, even the police will do some horizon scanning around certain technologies that, that might be useful. And similarly with other organisations looking after our national security. But I do genuinely think there needs to be a more holistic, broader horizon scan of what's coming out from the market, albeit two or three or four years hence from now. I'll give you a, I'll give you a for instance. So we're all a bit anxious about quantum computing and the ability of the, you know, the quantum computer, whoever gains quantum supremacy first is won the race to decode, decipher everybody else's information in the world in Absolutely. a few seconds, right? The reality is that's probably not it's quite, it's not quite as simple as that. But my, my employer, and I know parts of government are looking at a, a quantum key cryptography solution using photons of light to encrypt and encode information that is pretty much unhackable even by a quantum computer and actually that's really looking into the future with a really sort of pointed focus because we know where the problem is going to be well we know what it's going to be to not quite when it's going to happen so we're trying to solve that in advance now we're not alone in that there are other organizations who are helping us do that challenge we've got is that there are other solutions yeah and government as a whole is not receptive to tomorrow's problems. They're dealing with the problems of today. And this is where I think there's a real opportunity to make change happen. And I think if I think about COVID, you know, it was always, it's one of those black swan events, wasn't it? Or isn't it still live? But actually it was always discounted for the future. It's not gonna happen. You know, we don't, we're not gonna do our contingent planning well enough. It might, it probably won't happen, but we'll tick this box. The reality is it happened. And similarly with um, security in particular, and particularly quantum, then that's a big issue. And that is a big issue that we've got to solve for that problem today, not leave it until such time as something breaks in our national infrastructure and we can't get it back again. If I look at the issues that have happened just yesterday in Kyiv and in and around Ukraine, you know, it's very Neanderthal sort of missiles raining down on infrastructures. I mean, that, you know, I'm saying that could happen in the UK, but nevertheless, the analogy is that it can happen really quickly. So you need to be prepared for it. I'm not sure if I really answered your question as I would have liked to, Ian, but it's a very, very big challenge. Yeah, it is, it is a very broad subject. And um, we see a lot of great technologies that we'd all like to get in front of various public sector departments. And I've even had the conversation, well, you know, have you spoken to, I suppose, Blue Light for your technologies? As yeah, such? yeah, sure. And they can't come back and say, well, yeah, we've had the conversation. And they say, we don't have a requirement for it yet, because we've not had that problem, which fits with your answer. Yeah. So, so, so there used to be, there may still be, but there certainly was back in the day, a, a CTO role. This is actually the role that Liam Maxwell came in to do for government, which was this horizon scanning, looking to the future. Bill McCluggage was another CTO who is now in Northern Ireland, done some fantastic, fantastic work on faster payments after he left government. So, so, but I don't see, to your point, actually somebody owning the problems of tomorrow in that chief technology officer role. Now, I don't think I'm wildly wrong. There, there will be CTOs in and around departments. What I said to seniors just last week was we need to reconvene a more mature conversation with all parties of all shapes and sizes involved to shape the future. If we don't do that, we're doing our children and our children's children a massive disservice. Because, you know, I don't know, I don't know what I don't know. And if somebody tells me I've got some great tech for you, and it is you know, I like the idea, then I'm going to engage with it. But if I don't get the opportunity in to understand that, so I think there should be a, whether it's called a council of technology innovators or something similar to that, I think it's a really sensible idea.
Yeah, and I think BT have actually got quite an interesting... I've seen it on LinkedIn a few times. They've got Division X, which I think is there to look at emerging technologies and stuff like that. And I have seen that marketing, and that's just the name of it. It sounds quite cool. Well, yes, with all these things, it's easy to name something, right? And it's harder to get it to actually... To, to function properly, but I'll tell you what that really means. So you're absolutely spot on. So, so they have the bandwidth and the license to think about those problems for tomorrow. We're doing a lot of work in and around how, you know, we are all aging. We're, we're aging better, but nevertheless, what that really means is that there's a, a logjam of problems today, tomorrow, and the day after with the National Health Service because of resourcing issues and training and planning. We need to think about how technologies can help us live more securely and safely and more healthily in a completely different way as to they have done in the past. So you'll have noticed recently we've got, I can't remember the name of the product, but there's a monitor that's like a plaster that pops onto your arm. I think it's blood glucose monitoring and so on and so forth. Technologies like that integrated into a fabric, into a network of connectivity, if you will, then overlaid with artificial intelligence or even human intelligence, monitoring things are really, really useful. Now, the issue, I'll give you a for instance. So I said to my father is now 82 right 82 this month i'd like you to go on a trial to to make sure you don't fall over and all that tech's already out there the issue we have in is about the privacy right so my father said well i don't want people to know that i'm not well or i've fallen over i'm you know so there is that dichotomic challenge around you know those brilliant technologies they might be great in your mind in my mind we might see the future and the vision but you've got to bring people with you and that therein is the biggest challenge of all yeah, and I suppose that moves me on really greatly to the next question. The government have got a lot of data on its citizens from our healthcare records through to our pensions and salaries, what car we drive, you know, where we live. How could the government and private sectors work better together to maximise better services for us by optimising the data but without losing the trust of the public? I'm pausing and reflecting for a moment because that is the $64 million question. There is a massive data, data ocean, we'll call them now, not even a data lake, sorry, data ocean. Yeah. Data by itself is pretty useless, right? It, it, it's just bits and bytes. You know, you've, you've got to do something with it. You've got to understand its relationship to other data. And, you know, you can't necessarily compare me with another Simon Godfrey who's an Australian rules footballer in, you know, in Melbourne, right? You know, we, we, we might share the same name, but we're completely different people, right? Yep. But that's our only common denominator. I think we have to do it in a phased approach. We have to do it because there's a genuine need. And there was a genuine need with COVID. Now, whether it was done well or not, the, the imperative, strategic imperative was we really need to know who's at risk, you know, what age group you're in, and stratify the data in such a way that, that I know I'm going to be contacted by my local health provider because I'm over 50, you know, to get my fourth chair, which happened last week. That's a very simple view, but it actually is using that information in a much more joined up way. In the last 10 years, Ian, we've come a long way, actually, to joining up parts of government that now, in statute, can share data with other departments. But there was a big, long road ahead. It would be a nirvana situation if you could have just a massive bucket, you stuck all the data in the bucket, you stirred it up a bit, and then you asked a question of the bucket, and it gave you the answer you want for first for Simon Godfrey or for yourself, Ian, you know, in terms of, you know, not just where you live and what car you drive, but where you are, you know, which hospital you visited, when you visited the hospital last, how many doctor's appointments have you done, you know, how healthy are your children. I mean, all this data is really rich, but actually it has to be used in concert with permission. 
to which is Carissa Villas's point. It's called Privacy is Power, that's the book. Right? And actually, it doesn't advocate for everything staying private. What it does mm. say is you have control over what you allow. And I think there is an opportunity. I certainly know that Tim Berners-Lee is involved with a project called Data Locker, if that's the right name for it, where the purpose of that is to do exactly that, give me, you, and citizens power over how organisations of state particularly use our data. Yeah, and I suppose technology itself is probably allowing us to do that. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more sort of people talking about the likes of synthetic data so that they can actually manipulate that data, learn from it, use the data analytics without actually putting that data at risk and without losing, the, I suppose, the credibility of the data, which technology will eventually solve that problem for us, hopefully. Well, I think if you look at digital twins, you know, where, you see where you can mirror the entire if you wish to, the entire ecosystem of London and all the infrastructure that supports it in a digital environment and one scenario models over the top of that, that's exactly that. That's synthetic data. It won't affect the services being provided on the street per se, but it allows you to plan for eventualities and issues and challenges and opportunities. So, so I do agree that um, the advent, and I don't like the phrase, phrase digital twin, because it does remind me twinning cities, which I don't know if that went well or not. I think it suited some more than others. But nevertheless, Synthetic data, I think, is probably the best way to, to say, you know, to sort of pose the question back to key decision makers. How can you use mirrored synthetic data to model outcomes so that you improve your business or your outcomes for your citizens? It's a very important point. Moving to the last of my main sort of questions, and probably a question that a lot of people will be asking, particularly with the companies that we work with. Some organizations that we've seen, some technology partners, obviously, the likes of BT, Fujitsu, and those guys have great success selling into the public sector. What advice would you give to sales leaders or teams working or growing their public sector wallet share? Brilliant question. Patience is the first thing. I mean, you really have to because it does take a long time to go through some of these very torturous procurement processes. Understanding your customer as best as you possibly can, you know, get, getting up close and personal with the issues of the day. If we go, if we talk about universal credit, for example, you know, I, I was aware of that being born back in the day and, and, and very close to it at the time when I was a Fujitsu employee some years ago. And the UK's flood warning system was actually built ironically, by Fujitsu and not by BT, where, where I now work. So with my Fujitsu hat on, uh, we successfully beat BT at the time. But actually, the reason we did that was because we really understood the problem the customer was trying to solve, right? So, so I showed them a picture of my house under flood water, um, which sort of resonated, right? So it, was, it mattered personally to me. So it, it, to be honest, it's the little things. I mean, you do need patience. You do need to resource appropriately for it. And it is more costly to bid for, even though it shouldn't be, it is more costly to bid for public sector work. My, my advice would be come together, actually. I mean, you know, so with, the, with the Tech UK hat on, then I think there is a role for organisations like that and others, there are many others, of course, to, to advocate more strongly for better engagement for SMEs because there are barriers, right? And those barriers are not really about capability. It, it's about appetite appetite for risk on the behalf of the organisations that are wanting to sell and appetite for risk on the buyer in terms of the commercial longevity of SMEs. So if we think about the economics at the moment, Ian, you know, inevitably businesses will be 
strapped for cash at times. Like it's going to happen, right? You know, government and spending will slow down. So if I was a government procurement official, I'd be thinking, will this business, as brilliant as they might be, will they survive the storm that is inevitably going to hit our shores? And if they don't, then what happens to my, I put my neck on the block for this solution. Now, I'm not saying that those government officials will always err on the side of caution, but we need to solve for the problem about, you know, the what ifs of this world. And I think that conversation still needs to be had in depth. Great. Okay. Thank you for that. Just to wrap, I suppose, the conversation up because I'm conscious of your time. Yes. Very quickly, two very quick fire questions around the sort of technology. Are you up for watching sport in VR or would you rather be a season ticket holder, a a venue or a stadium? Do you know what? I? So I'm a big fan of American football and less so of soccer, actually. And I would be delighted to watch that in VR while I could pan around the players is going on. I mean, I would love to do that. That's a fantastic use of technology to do that, to have a really immersive experience. And at BT, we're actually doing a, a VR boxing match where you see the two boxers standing on the table in front of you in three dimensions when you put the goggles on clearly. It's wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. So, so yeah, so, so, but I don't, I, I do like the personal experience as well. I do enjoy the, you're there in the moment and, and you get the atmosphere of the crowd when somebody scores or a, your horse comes first or whatever it might be. You know, that's, a, that's that you can't replicate that on VR, I can assure you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And last but not least, what's your favourite tech gadget? <laughs> it's really simple, actually, and it's not a very techy gadget. I'm a guitar player, uh, uh, and I'm sort of reasonable, right? But I don't have perfect pitch, so I can I sort of know what the note of E sounds like, but I'm not quite sure. So it's my tuner on my guitar, because I use it all the time. Yes, I've got my devices, my phones, my mobiles, but my favourite, if I put it bluntly, my downtime, actually picking my guitar up, making sure it's properly tuned, and that is my favourite. I know it's probably not the answer you expected, but if I'm honest, that's what you know helps me to play better guitar. Yeah, and that's what our technology is for. It can help us not only in our work lives, but you know when we relax. And uh, if it makes us a little bit better, then that's what it's there for. So yeah, great answer, and thank you for that. And, and again, thank you for the time you've taken to talk to me today. It's been brilliant having you on the episode. You know, thanks for uh, taking an hour of your time to to engage with us, and really fascinating and insight into the public sector, which is sometimes comes across as been a little bit mysterious. It's just complex. It's always just complex. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity out there. But thank you very much for your time. Very conscious of your time as well. So thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Nice to speak with you, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with guest Simon Godfrey. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.